All right, we are continuing in the parable series this morning with uh, the book of Luke, chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Cindy. Uh, Jesus was constantly shocking his audience. I mean, just he, was, he loved to just disrupt the way people thought, uh, which I think is important for us to consider as we look at this parable, because we might read it and think, oh, that's a nice story. Cool. Um, but we, need to, we understand that the original listeners, when they had heard this, it would have been like a little thought grenade just kind of dropped in their midst. And then Jesus, just watch, Jesus would just watch it explode and just see how they figure it out. Um, because there's, there's no way in his telling this parable that his original audience wasn't thinking, what, Jesus? This just can't be. There's no way. Jesus here in this parable is describing how we live in right relationship with God. Uh, it's about righteousness. If you look at verse 9, it's about being justified before God. Look at verse 14 there. Uh, we'll give fuller definitions on those words uh, later, but for now, in essence, Jesus is talking about how we live in right relationship with God, how we come into God's acceptance and in His approval. And it was just absolutely shocking then, and as we think about the teaching today and also its application, it can be shocking uh, for us now. Um, and in a classic way that Jesus was often just so fond of doing, he told, it in, he told this teaching in story form, which meant uh, wherever you were then or wherever you are today, spiritually, whether you're just checking out the Christian faith, you don't identify as Christian, or whether you've been following Jesus for many years, there's something for you and me to take away. So let me pray, and then we'll, we'll look into what it looks like to live in right relationship with God. Father, thank you for this teaching. Thank you for your word and what it says uh, to us and for us. Lord, would you help me get out of the way and would you help me teach your things? Father, we ask for your Holy Spirit now to uh, be touched by you and be shaped by you. We ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, Jesus tells a parable of two men who went up to the temple to pray. And the first man he highlights is this Pharisee, this religious leader. Now, it's easy for modern readers to think of this Pharisee as this goober, right? I mean, here he is with this puffed-out prayer, like saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, these robbers, evildoers, adulterers. It's funny. That's actually how my mind translates the accent as I read this. I was studying it this week, and I realized I was putting the snobbish accent, accent on even as I was just reading about it. But that's kind of how we read it. I thank you that I'm not like these other people. We think of this Pharisee, we think of Pharisees in general, if you've read at all about them across the Bible, as hypocritical, as narrow-minded, and as puffed up. But in Jesus' day, being called a Pharisee was actually a badge of honor. It was a compliment, not a slam. Uh, sure, they could be a bit harsh at times, arrogant, but uh, to their contemporaries, they would just take it in stride because as everybody saw it, 
Pharisees had earned their right to boast. They had, they had earned the right to look down on everyone else because of their being good and because of their doing good things. In other words, when Jesus was telling this story, his original hearers would have heard this prayer and said, oh yeah, sure, he can pray that prayer. Uh, he's earned it. He's, he's, he's ahead of the pack. He's a good person. Um, but what Jesus is saying here is anything but that. He's talking about being in right relationship with God is fundamentally not just about being good or doing good things. Uh, if you look at verse 9, uh, he highlights, he kind of gives us the outline of this story of like what he's going to share. And the first thing he says is he tells the story to, quote, those who are confident in their own righteousness. Uh, that word uh, righteousness is an, is an interesting word. Um, it means literally a perfect holiness. Uh, it means living rightly, but it also means both in its Hebrew form and in its Greek form, so in other words, both parts of the Bible, Old Testament and New, this word righteousness also has to do with being approved and being accepted. Uh, one way to think of righteousness is the polar opposite of sin. Uh, what's sin? Uh, often I have heard that uh, sin can be thought of as just doing bad things, but actually if we understand sin as only doing bad things, we miss what sin is ultimately about. Sin is not just doing bad things. Sin can just as easily be making good things into ultimate things. Sin is building your life and meaning on anything, even a very good thing, more than God. Uh, sin is finding acceptance, approval, and worth elsewhere. And in doing so, the Bible warns we can actually enslave ourselves. Actually, in doing such things, finding our approval, acceptance, in other things, even good things, we can bring harm to ourselves. We can bring harm to others. So this Pharisee was building his identity, his worth, and being good and doing good things. And what was that leading him into, of course, was this posture of self-righteousness. Now, I doubt that I need to give examples for us to acknowledge that there's been a lot of harm done in the world by self-righteous religious people. Um, but here this Pharisee is building his identity, his worth on being good and doing good things, and what's happening is that is leading him down a path where he's actually being a harm to himself and others, let alone not being accepted or approved by God. Uh, just check it out in terms of how he is saying this prayer. Look at how many times he uses the first-person pronoun, I, in his prayer. Depending on your English translation, he says it, I at least five times. God, I thank you that I am not like other people. I fast twice a week, and I give all that I get. Um, in other words, this guy's not praying to God. He's praying to himself. Um, but sadly... Jesus is saying this Pharisee wasn't only missing God entirely, he was finding himself, by the way, enslaved to being good and doing good things, being enslaved even to religion. Um, look, it's really easy for us to build our identity or find our ultimate sense of value, approval, or acceptance on good things only for them to cause harm to us, only for them to enslave us. Uh, take, for example, relationships. Uh, relationships can be a wonderful thing, of course, but there are times in which if we build our identity around relationships or a particular relationship, uh, that we, if we make it into an ultimate thing, we can be in trouble. So, for instance, if we make uh, relationships into an ultimate, ultimate thing, we can cut corners or sacrifice values for a given relationship that we otherwise wouldn't do. Or, let's say, if a relationship doesn't work out the way we really hoped it would, or maybe in the absence of a relationship that we really hoped we would have, what happens is, because it doesn't work out, it's hard, it's sad, which that's hard, that's sad. But if we're building our identity or finding our worth in such things, it actually makes us crushingly sad. 
even to the point of despair. It makes us inordinately sad. And so when a friend or loved one comes to try to console us, we're inconsolable. We say that time heals all wounds, but if we've built our identity around something and we find our ultimate worth or approval in it, uh, we don't heal quite the same way. We carry that into other relationships or whatever the case might be. Or think about if we build our identity around something like what people think of us. Okay, again, this in of itself is not necessarily a bad thing. Being in, good, in people's good graces or having the approval of, of others is a good thing. It can be a very good thing. But if we make it an ultimate thing, we can be or get ourselves into trouble, even be enslaved to it. For instance, we're constantly absorbed or obsessed with how people perceive us or what they're thinking about us. And while, you know, we might replay, you know, most people would replay a situation and how things went and maybe how people or a group perceived us once or twice in our heads and then move on, if we are building our identity and finding our, our ultimate sense of worth or acceptance in it, we're not just thinking about that situation or what they're perceiving of us once or twice. We're thinking about it a hundred times. And maybe when someone comes to us and tries to say, hey, no, I don't think people see you that way. I think it's okay. Or maybe they do say, see you that way. But why let it bother you to this extent? Uh, while we'd hope that would be the end of it or it wouldn't come to anything else, a few moments later, if we're building our identity around such things, we're again mulling it over. We're anxious. We're worried. Uh, we can build our identity around any number of things. We can build it around power, influence, status, prestige, having nice things, how we look, and not even realize the effects that it has on us or the effects it has on others. This Pharisee was trying to be good and do good things, and yet you can clearly see in this text, not only was he just missing it entirely, it was also leading him to look down on others. It was leading him, of course, to self-righteousness. Um, good things, if made ultimate things, can ultimately bring us to a place where we need God's help, and we might not even recognize it. Uh, to get us thinking about this, to get us thinking about it in terms of our own walk, wherever we might be, what might you be building your identity on? Uh, what things might you place an inordinate amount of, of hope in or hope for in your life that could lead you to look down on others or could lead you to overly worry about something? or overly think of yourself more highly than you or I ought to of ourselves. Uh, here's the tricky thing about what we're talking about today and what Jesus is pointing out in this lesson. Um, do you think the Pharisee could have figured that out on his own? <laughs> do you think the Pharisee could have been like, oh yeah, wait a minute, I'm being self-righteous here. Um, I think what Jesus is showing us is by very definition it is really easy to be blind to the things that we are looking for our ultimate sense of acceptance and approval in. It is really easy to be blind to. And by the way, if someone had come up to this type of Pharisee and said, hey, Pharisee, might you be doing this, this, and this? How do you think the Pharisee would have responded? Oh, yeah, you're right. I'm sorry. I'm doing this wrong. Oh, likely not. The Pharisee probably would have been, who are you? No way. I'm the one to show you. Um, so how do we see these things in our lives? You could ask a loved one. Uh, be careful if you do, though, you know? If you ask a loved one, say a spouse or a roommate who you open yourself up to and really knows the things that you work through and struggle with, be careful, though, if you do, because they might tell you. And when they do, you know what I'm saying? So how can we address this? How can we think about this in terms of our own lives? Here's some thoughts to kind of help us think these things through. Um, what are the sort of things that, for instance, might wake you up in the middle of the night worried? 
Uh, and not just a little worried, but you just you find yourself worried about it constantly. Um, what are the things that you just find yourself, your mind and emotions just go to over and over and over again anxiously? And again, this is not to say other people wouldn't be anxious or worried about it or, some, or something to that effect, but it's just like you, you place an inordinate amount of, of thought to it or care to it that, it, that it holds a power over you. Or what if stripped from you or, or just taken away from you abruptly would lead you not just to the point of being sad like it would others, but to the point of leading you into despair? Um, what in your life, perhaps, and this is especially hard, might puff you up and cause you to think of yourself more highly than others? Um, Jesus' point in this parable, and in so many of his teachings, is that there's really only one place that we can go to where we can find ultimate approval and acceptance, and in it, ultimate security and ultimate freedom. And that, of course, is in God, as we'll see as he, as he moves on here. Uh, the next man who went up to the temple to pray in Jesus' story here in his parable was the tax collector. Now, as soon as we use the word tax collector, we need to understand something, and, and that is that Jesus' original audience would have immediately just had a lot of thoughts, a lot of feelings caught up with his choice of using the character of a tax collector in his story. Now, if you're here a couple of weeks ago in our current small groups, we talked about one of the tax collectors, so you, hopefully this is a bit of a review for you. But I remember last time I spoke about tax collectors, I had someone come up to me afterwards very thoughtfully and say, hey, I don't know, how does tax collecting work in the Bible? Is that like, you know, is Jesus like blasting CPAs or something? And I was like, that's a great thought, you know? And so what, what was the situation? Like, what did that look like? Um, back then, the ruling party, of course, was the Roman Empire, and they were collecting tax, taxes from all of their conquered peoples. And so in order to do that in a way where they wouldn't always just be seen as the bad guys, which was kind of a hard gig for them, uh, is they would go around in their conquered peoples and hired people from, from within the members of, from, from one of the members in that own community to then raise taxes on their behalf. You following? That way it wouldn't be a Roman just out there collecting taxes. It would be a person from within that people group, so they would be the bad guys. Um, and so how they would do that is they would set up just kind of this bidding war, and anybody who wanted to be a tax collector would come up and say, I can raise this amount. And, of course, the highest bidder was able to be the tax collector in that region. And whatever they were able to raise over and above what Romans actually required of them to raise as taxes, they got to keep off the top. And so the Romans, to kind of take care of these tax collectors, wouldn't tell the peoples like what the growing rate was, um, and they would keep that silent. And so the tax collectors just had this opportunity to go out, by the way, with the Roman power backing them and just collect whatever they think they could get. And when all of the people saw that these ta tax collectors were living opulent lives, you know what they were thinking. <laughs> these cheats, these crooks, these traitors. Um, that's the stigma of tax collectors back then. They were seen as the, as the, dreg, uh, as the dregs of society. Spiritually speaking, they were seen as as far away from and as disconnected from God as it came. Remember, this is a far more religious-based culture than ours is today. They thought far more religiously than we did today. They just thought, they just assumed, they just knew that if you were a tax collector, God was not happy with you. You following? So this is the, this is the person Jesus is now introducing in the story, a tax collector, okay? This is the model of this story. Verse 13, Jesus says, the tax collector went up to the temple to pray and check out his posture, especially in comparison to the Pharisee that we just talked about. He went up to the temple to pray, stood at a distance, wouldn't even look up to heaven, 
be his breast. And here is his prayer. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. In fact, in the Greek, in the original language, the indefinite article is used. That doesn't sound too great in English, so I understand why the translators chose the way they did. But we have here, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It actually is more accurate to say he was praying, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. He was, in other words, identifying himself as just in his own right, as unworthy as it comes. Uh, just as unworthy of acceptance, as unworthy of approval. And so he said, have mercy on me, the sinner. And here's how Jesus ends this parable, very shockingly. He says, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. The tax collector, not the Pharisee, the tax collector, went home justified before God. What? Here's Jesus' point. When it comes to living in right relationship with God, we need righteousness from outside. Uh, The Pharisee, who was doing good and being good, at least on the surface, was not justified. The tax collector was. Uh, We need righteousness from outside, is Jesus' point. Uh, You know, it's interesting, whenever somebody comes to us, and maybe this is not true of you, but I imagine it probably is, and says something really smug, really like uh, spiritually, uh, just just self-righteous towards you, just a holier-than-thou thought towards you, how do you tend to respond in those moments? You know, like, oh, gee, thank you. Your gift of God, you know, thanks for... We just, we respond, who the heck are you? You know, what high horse were you given to sit on and talk to me? Why is that? I mean, it seems to me the reason why is our knee-jerk response to have that thought, no matter who it is that brings that kind of attitude before us, is because we know that there's nobody who is flawless. Everybody, to use a Bible term, is a sinner. Uh, Or nobody is holy. Nobody is righteous in their own right. Uh, And so it follows, nobody is ultimately worthy of true and perfect acceptance or approval, let alone from God, who himself is perfectly righteous and just. And so it's with this heart posture that the tax collector comes before God, God, I don't deserve your acceptance, your approval. I'm a sinner. All I can do is ask for mercy. And Jesus said, this man went home justified. You know, that would have been shocking in that day, for these people to hear a tax collector justified before God. But you know what the most shocking thing about this parable is? That not just a tax collector was justified before God, that anyone was justified before God. Now, Jesus is saying that God loves and accepts you, anyone, fully, if you would but come to him and humbly receive what he offers to you. Uh, it's something that we receive his approval, his acceptance. We receive his righteousness. And by the way, that's the only way it's ever been when you look at the Bible from cover to cover. Uh, If you turn to the very first few pages of the Bible, you'll run into this big patriarch of the faith, the man named Abraham, who, by the way, is not just revered by Christians, but for millennia has been, been, been seen as the model of faith by so many people throughout human history. Abraham was a jacked-up dude. I mean, if we were to think about it, you know, let's say you'd never read the Bible, you probably would think, in terms of how much we revere Abraham, that he was the kind of guy depicted in these arts with the halo just kind of around his head. He's just perfect and, you know. Read the stories of Abraham. He was a jacked-up dude, just constantly messing up. Uh, For instance, he lied about who his wife was. He said his wife was his sister, not once but twice. Patriarch of the faith, a liar. 
Uh, another time, he laughed at God, together with his, his wife did as well. And by the way, God heard him. I mean, right? Um, he did these things and other things, which would only lead you to question, what's this dude being, have any, do, any right being the patriarch of the faith that he is, this model of the faith? You know, I love that he's jacked up. Why? Because I'm jacked up. Because every human being is jacked up. And I don't need the Bible to tell me that, to know that to be true. Uh, we need outside help. And that's how it worked with Abraham, by the way. If you look, if you look at Genesis 15, verse 6, this monumental thought of what God said about to and about Abraham. John, Genesis 15, 6 said, Abraham believed the Lord and he, God, credited it to him as righteousness. Uh, there it is. How was Abraham righteous before God, approved and accepted? Not by being good, not by doing good things. He believed, he received, and God made him righteous. Uh, this is the message of the Bible from cover to cover. God created us to be in right relationship with himself, and we rejected him. We rejected his ways and so we and all creation became subject to decay, to disease, to disaster, even death. But not wanting to abandon us, he sent his son to make a way back into right relationship with himself possible. So Jesus came to live the perfectly righteous life that we were meant to live, but don't. And after living the life that we ought to have lived, he died the death that we deserve. That's the gospel. Listen to how 2 Corinthians uh, puts it. It says, God made him, that is Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Uh, do you know what that's saying? It's incredible. It's not just saying when you put your hope and trust, your faith in Jesus, you are forgiven. By the way, I say that as a just statement. That's amazing. We so often focus on that in church, as we should. God forgives through Jesus. But it's not just saying that. What it's saying is, in Christ, he also makes us righteous. Uh, he accepts us and approves us. Uh, I've had many Christians over the years come to me and share, you know, a struggle with guilt of some or another. Um, just for whatever reason, they just can't shake a feeling of guilt because of this or that in their life or this or that uh, that they're doing or what caught up in or whatever it might be or had been in the past, whatever and they need to know in times like that that God takes sin seriously, but he forgives. He forgives and freely. But what they also need to hear, and perhaps maybe you need to hear it this, this morning, is that God doesn't just forgive you. He makes you righteous. Um, in other words, when God looks at you, when you've received what he has done for you on the cross through his son, he doesn't just see you and your record. He sees you and Jesus' record done for you on your behalf. Verse 14 says, I tell you that this man went home justified before God. Uh, here's a great definition of being justified or the word justification. Um, this is taken from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. The catechisms back in the day in the, in the, um, you know, the 16th century, 17th centuries um, were really, really... Um, thoughtful in terms of their uh, wording and articulation. Uh, here's one just really good definition. It's really packed, so I'll, we can leave it on the board here for a second. But what is justification? Justification is the act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight. 
only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Um, This means, among many things, that in Christ you are free. You are no longer enslaved to anything. You You no longer have to find your ultimate acceptance or approval in things that will only ever let you down in the end. Uh, can never can never last, uh, even when this life ends. Uh, God gives us in Christ our ultimate security and our ultimate freedom in Him, based entirely not on anything that we've done, but based entirely on what He has done for us. You know, an objection that will often be raised is, well, doesn't this just make Christians feel like they're going to live with a free pass mindset? You know, if they're just forgiven. Or now you're telling me, David, that they're also just made righteous? Like, isn't that just going to be problematic? Aren't Christians going to take that and just do what they will with that and just say, God, forgive me. Oops, my bad. Um, the problem with that thinking is it, does, it, it fails to take into account the, the entire point of this parable and indeed the gospel. Um, because if we truly understand and receive what Christ has done for us, it can't help but change us, by the way, from the inside out. Uh, that's what the gospel does. It changes us from an outside-in perspective, even being good or doing good things to try to earn our way. Or when we can't or we do bad things to feel like we haven't earned our way, feel the weight of that. It changes from an outside-in perspective to an inside-out perspective. And because of the gospel, at its core, we see that it roots out all self-righteousness. Jesus concludes his parable this way, For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Um, the gospel leads you into deeper humility um, because it's a message of we are, sin- we are sinners forgiven who have received mercy, which means, for instance, if in, well, if when you mess up, you can own it, you can ask for forgiveness. Why? Because your acceptance or approval isn't invested in them thinking of you a certain way or being seen as a certain way, or when something really hard happens in your life, the gospel leads you not into despair, even though the things are hard and sad at times, but even in the worst of things, we recognize that they are merely temporary and they hold no ultimate power over us. Even death itself has lost its sting. And then one last thought here, the gospel will lead us not to think of ourselves more highly than others. Because that really is the other point that Jesus is making in this parable. If you look one last time at verse 9, it says, To some who were confident of their own righteousness, we've talked about that, he told this parable, and he also told it to those who looked down on everyone else. Uh, The gospel, in other words, should lead you not to compare nor look down your nose at anyone. Um, Because if we've been accepted by God, we don't deserve it in the least. Others don't deserve it in the least either. Um, We have no business looking down on others, judging them, or looking at them as problems to fix. You know, it's interesting, in the book of Proverbs, which we went through over the summer, uh, there's a list of things that the the writer of Proverbs articulates as things that God absolutely hates. Uh, There's not a lot of these lists in the Bible where it says, okay, these are the things that God just hates. Like, he just really detests. One of those things in that very short list is it says that he detests haughty eyes. Interesting thought. It's a very old way of saying it, but haughty eyes. That's, you, you get the picture. Somebody who looks down their nose at somebody. Oh, I'm better than they. Oh, I know more. Um, he detests it. Why does he detest that? 
because he knows the true reality of our spiritual situation. And that is nobody deserves. Nobody deserves to be treated the way that God chooses to treat us and receive us. So when we do that to others, who are we? Um, it means we don't recognize what it is that God has done for us. Um, are there people in your life, either at the personal level or maybe at the categorical level, that you look down upon? Um, that you tend to judge in your heart or you think, you know, I just know better than those people do? Um, do you judge the tax collector type people of our society, whatever that might mean? Or people you would deem as tax collectors? Or, or you could just use the Pharisees list, robbers, evildoers, adulterers. Do you look down on such people? Um, here's another way of thinking of it. If a tax collector type equivalent came into church, would you receive them in love and care? Uh, we're not talking about condoning behaviors, but loving, receiving, caring for them. I had an experience just the last couple of, of days. I was, I was selling something, this, this used item, and I'm, I'm, I don't want to go into all the details, but I experienced a tax collector type behavior directed towards me, and it really worked me up. I got really upset, and then I was, re- I was realizing, oh man, why am I getting so upset by that? I don't deserve God's grace. I don't deserve Or what about if a Pharisee-type person came into the church? Oh, no. How would you, would you receive them with love and care? Maybe they came in with like a spiritual superiority mindset or thought, a little smug. Um, again, we're not talking about condoning behavior, but loving. Would you receive them? Uh, the gospel calls us to find our righteousness in God and God alone. And because of that, to extend that to others. Uh, where might you in your life uh, need to think about something that maybe is holding too much power over you? You look to it for acceptance. You look to it for approval. You're building your worth or identity in it or around it. Can you release it to God? Uh, can you find acceptance and worth and freedom in Him? And then how can you, because of God's grace to you, because of His mercy to you, act- actively extend that same sort of love to others? Not looking down, but receiving others, caring for them, and loving them with the same undeserving love that God gives you in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this shocking teaching. This teaching that says you love us even when we are sinners. Lord, in our own right, we're each like tax collectors. We're each people that miss the mark, that don't live lives that we ought and put uh, too much worth or approval or or look to find such things and things that only can hold a power over us. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for sending your son to die for us that when we put our hope and trust and faith in him, we can receive ultimate approval and acceptance in you, approval and acceptance that can never be taken away from me, even by our own actions that we confess we constantly need forgiveness for. But we look to you and your love and your acceptance. Would you help us to be a people that also extends that same love to others, whether they be tax collector type people or whether they be Pharisee type people and all those in between. We love you and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.